Well, we come now to the third letter that Jesus commissions John to write to the seven churches of Asia. The number seven is significant here because seven represents totality or completeness. So these seven real historical churches that John knew well are then a, uh, a, a picture for us. They, this word comes to us. It's, it's representative of the whole church right down to our time. This is God's word for us, for our church, Christ covenant church. And we'll see it is a word of assessment. There is commendation, there is criticism, and there's a call to repent with a warning of judgment and a promise of gifts to those who conquer. The church is a corporate entity. It's a family, a body of people. Uh, but that body is made up of individual members. In these letters, Jesus assesses the health of the church, but that doesn't mean he fails to address the individual in that church. So they hang together. He has a word for the church in Pergamum, but in that church was a man named Antipas, whom Christ commends. So taking the letters as a whole, you'll see Jesus repeat seven times, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's a call to you and to me to listen up. If the Spirit of God dwells within you, hearken to His voice. What Jesus says to us, the Spirit says to us. Did you catch that in verse 12? Uh, it says the words of Him, referring to Jesus. And then in verse 17, let him hear what the Spirit says. So the Son of God and the Spirit of God are co-equal in their authoritative word to us. We need to listen. So in these letters, Jesus speaks to the strengths and weaknesses of particular churches. Perhaps you've picked up on the pattern in our sermons thus far. Uh, we're attempting to identify what marks a healthy church. So Nick urged us towards an authentic love, and John spoke last week encouraging us toward an enduring faithfulness. Today we'll look at the absolute necessity for a church to be marked by biblical teaching. And this of course has implications for us individually. The book of Revelation sum total is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 1. So specific to our passage today concerning the church in Pergamum, we'll see this revelation namely in his character, in his commendation, his criticism, and his call to repent. So that's the outline. First, his character. What is Jesus like? Maybe you've noticed as Jesus addresses each church, he'll refer back to chapter 1 and the vision of himself, uh, identifying one specific aspect of that vision that corresponds to what he wants to say to that particular church. So for the church in Pergamum, their letter contains the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, verse 12. And in chapter 1, verse 16, we see that this sword is actually protruding from his mouth. And that's a strange image, which should trigger in your mind, this means something. Now, no doubt, I have no doubt that John is giving us an accurate description of what he actually saw. But we also have to keep in mind, this is apocalyptic imagery. So, when Christ returns, it's not as if he'll have a sword actually, you know, between his teeth with his head vigorously slashing back and forth. Uh, that's not the picture. This sword in his mouth symbolizes his word. Specifically, his word of judgment. When we say the word of God, sometimes we mean the Bible. When you come across the word of God, that phrase in Scripture, uh, it, it can refer to the message of salvation. 
But the Word of God can also refer to God's way of searching out and laying bare the hearts of men and women and declaring judgment. We could go to Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. The Word of God lays us all bare. And those who spurn the Word of God will be judged by the Word of God. And in the book of Revelation, that spoken judgment is depicted by a sword coming from the mouth of Christ. Revelation 19.15, From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. The context is judgment. So Christ is bringing His Word of judgment upon the nations. And this image has been used before in Isaiah 11, so the original readers of the book of Revelation should have picked this up. Um, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So this is the Messiah that Isaiah is talking about. You jump down to verse 4. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So I said the vision corresponds to the letter. What does the sword in his mouth, this word of judgment, how does that correspond to what he wants to say to the church in Pergamum? Well, we'll see that Jesus means to address their teaching because their teaching had diverted from the word of God. So the opening line to the church in Pergamum is dreadful. Jesus reminds them that he bears a sword for declaring judgment. But follow with me, the character of Christ. There is a severity yet a tenderness. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That's a tender line. Jesus knows. Jesus knows where they live and how truly dark and hostile that city is to their Christian faith. Jesus knows the cultural contexts of his churches. He's not ignorant. You remember the vision, he's in the midst of the lampstands. You remember? The lampstands are the churches, and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus is present with his churches by his spirit. He knows what they are having to endure, he knows about their sufferings. And that should fill our hearts with comfort. Have you ever simply stated back to someone the truth of what they're passing through? how difficult it is, how hard it is, how excruciating, how unjust. And they dissolve into tears. Why? Because somebody finally understands. Someone empathizes. Someone can see me. Somebody knows. Jesus knows. He is present among His people and He knows where you dwell. Some of you might say, if you only knew what goes on in my home, at the hands of a family member. And the vicious words that are uttered, the dishes that are smashed, the scandalous sins that are committed, it is almost unbearable to be there. Jesus knows where you dwell, even if it be Satan's very throne. Jesus bears a sword, but He doesn't fail to acknowledge faithfulness in the midst of hardship. That's the character of Christ. So we turn now to His commendation to the church in Pergamum. Notice I'm saying commendation, not condemnation. I want to make sure you're hearing me correctly. 
Pergamum was a major center for the imperial cult, which uh, was the worship of the Roman emperor. The city had a temple to Augustus, who was thought to be divine. They had a 40-foot-high altar to the god Zeus, king of the gods in Greek mythology. Pergamum was as pagan as pagan can be. Jesus rightly says, it's where Satan dwells. So you can imagine the incredible social and economic pressure that Christians had to put up with. Uh, So say you're a metal worker and you're part of the local trade guild, but you've become a Christian. And uh, the thing is, this local trade guild, you you, want to have a legitimate business in the city. You've got to be a part of this group. But you've become a Christian, and they go to the annual festival where the patron deity is worshipped. And you've got to go, and you've got to bow down before an idol. You have to offer meat to that idol, and you may even have to have sex with a temple prostitute. That's what went on. You say, I cannot do that. I belong to Christ. I worship Him alone. Well, that's going to cost you. You are going to be ostracized. You're not going to get the job contract. You may lose your livelihood. You may be threatened with violence. So Jesus commends the church in Pergamum for holding fast to Him in the midst of this persecution. He knows what they're having to endure. He recalls a former time when one of their members was killed, a, name, a man named Antipas. And did you catch what Jesus calls him? He calls him my faithful witness. That's, that's the very phrase Jesus gives himself in chapter 1, verse 5. Can you imagine to please the Lord and receive such a designation as that? Do you long to hear words of commendation from your Savior? Paul says we make it our aim to please Him. 2 Corinthians 5.9 To hear from your Master, well done, my good and faithful servant. I wonder if, if you've wrestled with this. I remember being back at Georgia Tech when I was a student and hearing from one of my leaders in the, the campus ministry I was a part of. Um, this guy said one day, if I never read my Bible for the rest of my life, God would not love me any less than He does right now. Or to put it positively, if I read my Bible every day for the rest of my life, God would not love me more then than He does right now. I know what they're getting at. The believer can rest in the love of God because Jesus has already done everything necessary to make him right with God. No amount of Bible reading or or lack thereof can improve upon the work of Christ or jeopardize the love of Christ for you. That is gloriously true. In Christ, God is pleased with me, period. But see what that truth should produce in a believer. He wants with all his heart to please his master. Tim Keller says, religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Therefore, I obey. The Christian has new heart affections. He wants to be found faithful. Just like John reminded us last week, be faithful unto death. Do we do it perfectly? Never. Antipas couldn't claim that either. Nevertheless, the Christian is marked by a holy desire to please the one who has enlisted him. And Jesus does not hold back the commendation. So brothers and sisters, crowns and commendations await us for the glory of God. And where is God asking you to stand firm? Antipas was probably killed for refusing to participate in the imperial cult. He refused to worship 
what the culture worshipped. I wonder how will we be asked to compromise our faith as the tidal wave of the sexual revolution passes over our country. And I'm sure you know what I mean when I refer to the sexual revolution. I'm talking about the whole apparatus of feminism, of the dissolution of marriage through easy divorce, the redefinition of marriage through so-called same-sex marriage, the, the entire LGBTQ agenda, uh, gender confusion, and I don't list any of that off smugly with my nose in the air. There is massive human wreckage in the wake of this movement for which I grieve. There is a lot of pain coming to our culture because this revolution will bear bitter fruit. But on the front end, it's vicious. And they're just little pinpricks right now, the casualties. We hear of a, of a Christian baker over here, of a Christian florist over there, a Christian pharmacist, a Christian photographer who've had the state come after them because they refuse to violate their conscience before God. When will the sexual revolution come to your place of employment? It may impact your eligibility to do all kinds of things that we can't even imagine right now. To hold political office, to work for the government in any capacity, really. It may impact your child's ability to go to the college that he wants, to play team sports, to receive federal grants or scholarships. It will surely mean becoming a social outsider. We will lose friends. Neighbors will distance themselves from us. Coworkers will turn cold. We are in the midst of a titanic battle with the seed of the serpent that has spanned the centuries. And it ebbs and flows throughout history and it appears now it is heating up again in our time and in our place. So the temptation to downplay or, or to soften the rough edges of our faith will only intensify. But the church in Pergamum held fast to his name when their very lives were on the line. It was a terrifying time when it would have been easy to say like Peter, I don't know the man. But they didn't do that. They didn't do that. They held firm. Christ commends them for that. They have withstood external persecution and they continue to do so. And I think you know, one of the reasons uh, why the book of Revelation was written in the first place was to prepare these churches to suffer. Remember last week, chapter 2, verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. This is a word for us, for our church in this time. Tom, he recently did a biographical sermon on Abraham Kuyper. This is what Kuyper says. When principles that run against your deepest convictions begin to win the day, then battle is your calling and peace has become sin. You must, at the price of dearest peace, lay your convictions bare before friend and enemy with all the fire of your faith. So Christ commends our faithfulness. I do want to say here, Christians don't carry pitchforks, do we? If anything like hate is welling up inside of you, well, you've got another problem you need to deal with. I'm talking about enduring persecution for the sake of Christ. I'm not talking about picking a fight for your own glory. We are beggars telling other beggars where they can find bread. We're not strong people telling weak people they need to become strong like us. We are weak and wounded just like they are. But the thing is, we know a strong man. And we say with them, come with me, come with me to him. That's what we want to do. 
Jesus knows our sufferings, but he also knows our sins. Two little phrases I want you to see. Verse 13, I know where you dwell. But then verse 14, I have a few things against you. Jesus empathizes with his people, but he doesn't flatter them. He loves them far too much to do that. He tells the church in Laodicea, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Doesn't that ring true in your own life? You know when somebody loves you, when they're willing to confront you, when you're going off the rails, as Tom likes to say, right? That's a sign of sincere love. A wife who is indifferent to her husband's alcoholism doesn't really love him. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And there is no better friend than Jesus Christ. So with his commendation, there is criticism. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Jesus knows their membership directory through and through. You have some there, he says, who are false teachers, and you're tolerating them. Now this is mind-bending. It's hard to wrap our mind around this passage because how, how is the church in Pergamum loyal to Christ in this extremely hostile environment under the very real threat of death, of death and, and yet at the same time they're tolerating false teaching in their very midst. They hold fast the name of Jesus yet permit teaching in the church that Jesus hates. We find that out in chapter 2, verse 6. Jesus hates the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That was in the letter to the church in Ephesus, which in some ways is the exact opposite of the church in Pergamum. The church in Ephesus was very strong on doctrine. They could spot false teachers. But they had lost their first love, Jesus says. They were failing to do the works they once did, perhaps involving evangelism and engaging the outside world. The church in Pergamum, on the other hand, is being faithful in relation to the outside world, and yet... They're not watching their doctrine inside the walls of the church. One author, he compares the church in Pergamum to, quote, an ungrounded, youth-infused church. They were faithful, passionate witnesses, but they had compromised with the world and accommodated to their sexually immoral and idolatrous culture. They were missional, but misguided. You know, churches, I think, can operate in a parachurch kind of way for a while, but eventually not having clear definition on things like membership and leadership and doctrine and discipline, it's going to take a toll. And these are not just pragmatic concerns. These are biblical boundary lines for a healthy church. So it seems in Pergamum, the encroaching culture had slipped in and found a place in the pulpit. And the church did nothing. So essentially, they have failed to bring church discipline on these members. Jesus says, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Remember Balaam back in the, the book of Numbers. So king of Moab, Balak, he hires Balaam to curse Israel. But every time Balaam tries to do it, only blessing comes out. The, the Holy Spirit restrains him. So Balaam finds another way to subvert Israel. We find out in Numbers 31.16, Moses says, on Balaam's advice, that's the key phrase, on Balaam's advice, Israel began to participate in the Moabite sacrifices which involved sexual immorality. So Jesus is likely drawing a connection from this story to the Roman imperial cult, the pagan temple worship 
that the city of Pergamum was known for. There were members in the church who were teaching that it's okay to participate in, this, in these things. And this wasn't just meat offered to an idol and then later sold in the marketplace. This was meat eaten in the context of idol worship. And sexual activity was involved. And the teaching of the Nicolaitans may have been similar in nature. You see the language. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It's interesting that Balaam in Hebrew and Nicolaitans in Greek both mean to conquer the people. So Jesus may be talking about one and the same teaching here. How could the church possibly tolerate this kind of stuff? Well, we've already said that failure to participate in pagan worship could mean the loss of your paycheck. So there was an economic pressure to comply. But also these teachers might have been arguing that pagan worship didn't violate their faith in Christ because these are just false gods. No, it, it, they're not even real, so it doesn't matter. In any case, the church lacked discernment and backbone to confront these teachers. And it was their duty to confront these teachers. Did you ever notice in uh, Galatians chapter 1, the audience is to the churches of Galatia. Paul holds the entire church accountable for the teaching they receive. He says in verse 6 of chapter 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The members of a local church, not just the elders that lead them, are responsible to ensure that the church is receiving sound teaching and preaching. So the question is, do you have ears tuned to the gospel standard? Could you pick up false teaching if you heard it? I want to be careful here because this is not a license to nitpick every teacher that stands up in front of you. Right? Your first heart response should be, I want to obey the truth of the passage that this guy's up here teaching. Not to challenge and dissect every little point he might have. So this is a matter of maturity, but still, we need to know false teaching when it occurs. Clearly that um, teaching that encourages worship of a false god or sexual immorality, that is false teaching. Teaching that denies the authority of Scripture or denies that salvation is through Christ alone, this is false teaching. Teaching that denies that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone is false teaching. I remember uh, reading an interview with, with J.I. Packer when, when he and the entire church that he was a member of uh, left the Anglican Church of Canada because at the time, in 2008, they were blessing same-sex unions. And the interviewer asked him, why are you leaving the ACC? And J.I. Packer said, because they are denying a fundamental aspect of the gospel. And the interviewer said, what's that? And he said, repentance. Sometimes it is clear as a bell. You can spot it a mile away. Other times it's harder to pin, to pin down. Uh, sometimes it's not false teaching per se, but it's just clearly unhelpful and distracting. When I was 15, I helped out with a Vacation Bible School at the church I was a part of. I love VBS. That's where I first understood the gospel. I am so grateful for those, those teachers. But this particular summer, this particular day, I was helping out, and there was a teacher who had the kids gathered, and she began to teach them that God sends little birds to give us messages, and we should look for these, these birds. Right. Now, that, is a, that is a very unhelpful thing to say to a bunch of kids. 
Uh, she didn't try to anchor what she was saying in Scripture whatsoever, though I do remember she looked up at the sky with a smile on her face. And I sat there. There were other adults in the back of the room, and I thought, is somebody going to say something? Because this is just wacky. Now, what's going on? Well, listen how Paul instructs Timothy about such things. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The descriptive language that Paul uses for unbiblical or sub-biblical teaching is really helpful. If you could just go through First and Second Timothy and underline all these phrases, you'd be greatly helped. He calls it irreverent babble. Talk that spreads like gangrene, foolish, ignorant controversies, vain discussion, silly myths that breed quarrels about words. That's just a sampling. I've only been here a short while, but it seems clear to me that God has been gracious to Christ Covenant Church by protecting you from false teaching and even unhelpful, distracting teaching. The members and leaders have a good track record of watching our doctrine closely. And this is a great gift from God for which we should be thankful. In fact, this concern for sound teaching, I think, is bound up in the very DNA of the church from its inception. Because as I've come to understand, most, if not all, of the founding members of this church left another church 27 years ago in mass because the senior minister there began to reveal in his preaching that he did not hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. And those brothers and sisters could spot it. They could hear it. And it was a very painful parting, as I hear, that some of us are still recovering from. They love that church. And I know it's, it's debatable at times whether to stand firm, to challenge, to bring discipline, but there are times when that is just not possible and you have to go begin a new work. And that's what they did. And in God's grace today, Christ Covenant Church exists. Biblical teaching is treasured here, but that may not always be the case. The cultural winds may change to such an extent that we will be tested in ways we could have never imagined. The church in Pergamum is a warning to us. You know, they were not publicly denying Christ, but they were on a slippery slope that began with some. 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So the fact is, people have a tendency to go theologically adrift. We get tired of orthodox teachers, and so we find others that will, find, will, will take care of our, our itching ears. They'll give our itching ears what we want. Do you have itching ears? That's a question to ask. Are you seeking novelty? Has your heart grown tired of faithful biblical exposition? Do you have an unhealthy craving for controversy? That's what Paul, that's how he, he describes it. We are to be held captive to the word of our captain in all our teaching and preaching and our care groups and our one-on-one -on -one discipleship relationships clinging to the word of God. Having such a devotion to the Word of God is why John's been exiled. Why was he stuck on Patmos? Chapter 1, verse 9, on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's why. 
The church in Pergamum stands in stark contrast to that. They are accommodating to the culture and their teaching now has toxins. And so Jesus says, repent. The church has to turn away from their idolatry and sexual immorality and must call these teachers to account. If they will not repent, Jesus says, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And remember, we established earlier that the sword in his mouth is his word of judgment. I notice that this call to repent is addressed to the whole church. If he comes, his word of judgment will fall on these, te- these teachers and presumably the entire church. Maybe you've read the big picture story Bible to your kids. It's great. We've been through it several times. It says at the beginning, do you know how God created everything? Simply by speaking words. Imagine making the world with words, strong words, powerful words. So the word of God is life-giving. We see it in creation. We see it in Jesus' ministry. Go, let it be done. And the centurion's servant is healed. Little girl, I say to you, arise. And the synagogue ruler's daughter, she comes back to life. Lazarus, come out. And in John 11, the man who had died came out, we read. God creates with his word. He brings to life with his word, but he also slays with his word. 2 Thessalonians 2.8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. His breath is his word, his word of judgment. And that's what's coming to the church in Pergamum if they do not repent. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Not true. Not in this case. Jesus' word of judgment means destruction. So do you see why carrying out church discipline on those who persist in false teaching is so merciful? It is a picture of the coming more dreadful judgment that we're trying to spare people. It's the last resort we have that they might come to their senses. But the inactive church who has been taken in by this teaching is warned as well. Jesus will not abide false teaching in his church. It may seem to have a life of its own for a time, but eventually it will be subdued and crushed. In the case of Pergamum, this was a live situation in in which Jesus says he will attend to soon. I will come to you soon. It's likely he means he's coming in history, not just at the second coming. Because his judgment of this church does not mean necessarily that the end has come. God works out his judgment in providence. His word of judgment will come in history with consequences in real life. So this is a dreadful, dreadful warning. But Jesus, he holds out a promise as well. We see again the severity and the tenderness of our Savior. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So clearly we've seen that Jesus has a concern for the health of this church. But here we see his knowledge and concern for the individual in the church. To the one who conquers, he promises lavish gifts. To conquer means to endure persecution like Antipas. And to hold fast the name of Jesus. To conquer means to keep yourself from the defilement of false teaching. To that one, Jesus will give some of the hidden manna. Something I wish I could explain, but I can't because it's hidden. 
right? I do know, and we all know, that there is a coming marriage supper of the Lamb. And this will be a great feast at a time when all hunger and thirst and pain will be no more. And so Jesus holds out that final reward to those who conquer. If you remember in the Old Testament, the manna from heaven was described uh, as white in color, like bdellium stone. So this white stone that Jesus offers may just be another way of describing the same final reward that's coming. We do know that in those days, if you were a winner in the public games, you received a white stone that gave you access to the banquet. Uh, White stones were also given in court cases. If you were acquitted, all charges were dropped. You got a white stone. If you were declared guilty, you got a black stone. So certainly the white color indicates purity and cleanness. But the stone that Jesus gives also has a name written on it. And apparently no one knows that name but you and God. In a sense, it's just a secret between you and Him. In the Old Testament and in the ancient world, knowing someone's name, especially the name of God, meant to share in that person's character or power. And to give the name meant to possess that person. And to receive a new name meant to receive a new status or new power. To the one who conquers, to the one who holds fast his name, Jesus will give a new name, showing that you belong to him. Your identity is inextricably linked to him. And we have that fellowship with him now, but we will know it fully then. Such are the gifts promised by our Savior, both to those in the church in Pergamum and to those among us here who conquer who hold fast his name and his teaching. Let's take a moment now to reflect on these things. And in a moment, uh, Ray will close our time in prayer.